turn in the Word of God tonight to Matthew 26. Matthew 26. We're going to begin reading in verse 47 of this chapter. Matthew 26, we'll start reading in verse 47. Up to this point, of course, Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane, and he had offered his prayers before God there, that if it was God's will, let this cup pass from him. Now we find he and his disciples coming out of that, that garden, and while he was speaking yet to his few disciples there at the Brook Kidron, we find that a multitude is going to come in and take him away. So that's where we start reading at verse 47. While he yet spake, lo, Judas, one of the twelve, came, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he that betrayed him gave them a sign, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same is he. Hold him fast. And forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. And Jesus said unto him, Friend, wherefore art thou come? Then came they and laid hands on Jesus and took him. And behold, one of them which were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck a servant of the high priests and smote off his ear. Then said Jesus unto him, Put up again thy sword into his place, for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Thinkest thou not? Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled that thus it must be? In that same hour said Jesus to the multitudes, Are ye come out as against a thief with swords and staves for to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple, and ye laid no hand on me. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And all the disciples forsook him and fled. Now here begins our text this evening, verses 57 through 68. We won't read these verses again. Verses 57 through 68. They that had laid hold on Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. But Peter followed him afar off unto the high priest's palace and went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Now the chief priests and elders and all the council sought false witness against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Yea, though many false witnesses came, yet found they none. At the last came two false witnesses and said, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And the high priest arose and said unto him, Answerest thou nothing? What is it that which these witness against thee? But Jesus held his peace. And the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus saith unto him, Thou hast said, Nevertheless I say unto you, Hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man 
sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, now ye have heard his blasphemy. What think ye? They answered and said, He is guilty of death. Then did they spit in his face and buffeted him, and others smote him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy unto us, thou Christ, who is he that smote thee? Now Peter sat without in the palace, and a damsel came unto him, saying, Thou also wast with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied before them all, saying, I know not what thou sayest. And when he was gone out into the porch, another maid saw him and said unto him that were, with there, that were there, This fellow was also with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied with an oath, I do not know the man. And after a while came, another, came unto him they that stood by and said to Peter, Surely thou also art one of them, for thy speech bereath thee. Then began he to curse and to swear, saying, I know not the man. And immediately the cock crew. And Peter remembered the word of Jesus, which said unto him, Before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. And he went out and wept bitterly. This far we read God's word tonight. As we mentioned, our text is found in verses 57 through 68, which deal with Christ's trial now before the Sanhedrin. <clears throat> it, was the, it was Thursday night of the Passion Week. Jesus was finished praying his three agonizing prayers in the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas Iscariot had now led a large band of soldiers to the garden in order to take Jesus prisoner. To this multitude, Jesus had surrendered himself, as we have found, willingly. He did so without a fight in order that he might actively walk in the way that the Father had now laid out for him that would lead to his death on the cross. After all, that was the only way that Jesus would win his kingdom. The band of men we find in verse 57 of our text led Jesus away to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest. Before taking Jesus directly before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, however, Jesus was first of all led to a man named Annas. Matthew in his gospel account does not speak of that fact, but we find that the Apostle John in his account, John 18, verses 12 and 13, speaks of that. Then the band and the captain and officers of the Jews took Jesus and bound him and led him away to Annas first, for he was father-in-law to Caiaphas, which was the high priest that same year. <clears throat> we cannot be certain, of course, why it was that he was led first to Annas, Perhaps Annas, out of some malicious curiosity, wanted to see this man, Jesus, before he was led before the Sanhedrin. But more than likely, Jesus was led to him first in order that Caiaphas could call together the rest of the men of the Sanhedrin to gather together in 
that room where they were going to try Jesus. The house of Caiaphas formed the setting, therefore, of the events that transpire in, that, in the passage that we have before us. This house of Caiaphas was called a, a, a palace in verse 58 of our text. But in reality, it did not even compare to the glorious palace in which Herod, the king, now dwelt. It was really nothing more than a regal house, a large house. It was very large, however, because it was a two-story building, and it had a balcony on the inside of that building that looked down on a courtyard. The house itself surrounded that courtyard, and it was through that outer gate of the courtyard that they led Jesus to this room in the house of Caiaphas. It was also in that courtyard that we find the Apostle Peter following Jesus and allowed, being allowed into that courtyard to wait to see the outcome of that trial. While Peter waited there, we learn in the passage tonight before us that he mingled together with the servants of the high priest until they really found him out, and there he denied his Lord three times. But the Sanhedrin was busy with something else. They were busy gathering themselves together now in that large hall that was really hidden pretty well from that courtyard. And the trial that they now entered into with Jesus himself was to be a secret trial. A trial in which they would definitely secure the condemnation of this man. In that room, our Lord was condemned. <clears throat> in that room, he was sentenced to death by this ruling body of the Jews. And it's that trial of Jesus now before the Sanhedrin that we wish to consider tonight. We do that under the theme, Jesus' Condemnation by the Sanhedrin. Jesus' Condemnation by the Sanhedrin. The trial, the ground of his condemnation, and the sentence. The trial, the ground, and the sentence. <clears throat> the Sanhedrin was the ruling body of the Jews. The highest Jewish tribunal before and at that time of Jesus. Every nation subjected under the Roman rule, and that Roman rule, remember, was over all of the world. Every nation that was subjected under that Roman rule was allowed to have its own governing body, which was in turn, of course, answerable in all of its decisions to Rome itself. And they were answerable because Rome, in each one of its provinces, placed a, a governor of sorts, a representative of the Roman Empire. And we find that Pontius Pilate was that procurator or that governor that was stationed in Palestine and in Jerusalem in particular. So the, the Sanhedrin, this ruling body of the Jews, was really answerable to him. But this ruling body of the Jews was a powerful body, perhaps powerless in the eyes of Rome, but a powerful body in Israel because the Jewish nation did assume that the Sanhedrin was its authority, the ruling body of the Jews. 
was made up of 71 members, most of whom were probably present there at the trial of Jesus. For verses 57 and 59 now that we consider tonight, it is evident that this body consisted of the scribes, of the high priests, and the elders of the people. There were, or these were the, the religious, as well as the wealthy and the more influential elite in the nation of Israel. Elsewhere we learn in the scriptures, of course, that the elders themselves were probably made up for the most part of Pharisees and Sadducees. Then at the head of the Sanhedrin, there was that powerful high priest who had the highest seat of authority there in the Sanhedrin. And that year, Caiaphas had taken that seat as, or as a high priest, the leader of the Sanhedrin. We find that Caiaphas himself was a Sadducee and had now been chosen as the high priest of the Sanhedrin in the place of his father-in-law, Annas. That's the man that Jesus went and waited before as the Sanhedrin was being gathered together in another room. Annas had been deposed, actually, from his office the year before because of his crooked dealings with the government of Rome. But Annas yet held a lot of influence in the Sanhedrin, seeing that his son-in-law, Caiaphas, was now made the high priest of that ruling body of the Jews. Caiaphas proved himself to be a good replacement of Annas because Caiaphas himself was corrupt in his dealings as well as the high priest in the Sanhedrin. That, that in turn, <clears throat> does not speak well of the entire body that was ruling Israel at that time. The entire body of men were given to political wrangling, it seems, intrigue in the courts of Rome. The Jews had always been a sore spot, of course, in the Roman Empire because the Jews always wanted to, to break away from that rule of Rome or any other foreign government over them. And we find that they, they spent more time as this ruling body of the Jews in politics rather than in the spiritual leadership of that nation of Israel. This body of men, after all, was made up of the elders of the people, and they were the spiritual leaders now of Israel. They weren't just this conglomeration of political figures in Israel. They were made up of high priests, those who sacrificed for the people. They were made up of Pharisees, a religious sect that had come to prominence in the nation of Israel, and now were leaders and teachers there in the temple of Israel. They were made up of Sadducees, and although this was a rather heretical sect, nevertheless, they were wealthy. They had a position of prominence yet in the nation of Israel. And then there were the scribes, men who poured over the Old Testament scriptures and, and, and studied those scriptures and the meaning of that. So the, the leaders of Israel at that time were really spiritual leaders. And it was their job to 
to lead the nation of Israel in the ways of God. In other words, the trial that took place here of Jesus that night was not before some political party. It was held before the church. These men represented the church at that particular time. The nation of Israel had followed after their religious leaders. And for the most part, the nation was no longer looking for a Messiah who was going to come and save them from their sin. Now, obviously, there were those in the nation of Israel that were faithful. A faithful few, a, a remnant left in Israel that still looked for the coming of that Messiah and looked for a Messiah who would come and who would indeed save them from their sins. So there, there were those in Israel that were still looking for that Messiah. But these men who were, who were so steeped in the knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures were the same men who had led now the nation of Israel into apostasy and unbelief. Even, mind you, exercising their discipline by persecuting the faithful. The trial itself was clear-cut evidence that the Sanhedrin had already rejected Jesus as the Messiah. It wasn't as if they were going to examine him there to see if he truly was the Messiah. They had already rejected him as the Messiah. They, they, they had really never wanted anything to do with this Jesus from the very start. They had attempted over and over and over again to trip Jesus in the Jewish faith, see that he, he maybe could be made a fool out of in front of all of the people. And as time went on, more and more they, they plotted together to kill that Jesus. And this trial was merely a result of all of that plotting and all of that hatred that they had toward Jesus. So the verdict now, the verdict of that trial was already in place before the trial began. It becomes evident, of course, because they sought false witnesses to put Jesus to death. That's why they sought these witnesses. The purpose of the trial, therefore, was only to make things look like they were righteous in what they were now doing. Appear righteous in the sight of the nation of Israel. And that in order to cover up, really, the blackness of their intent as a Sanhedrin. That the Sanhedrin had already condemned Jesus is evident from a number of considerations that we find in the passage before us tonight. First of all, it's obvious from the time and the place of that trial. The trial took place during the nighttime. Now, that by law was not allowable. By law, all acts of justice were held during the daytime and was open for anyone to come and witness the proceedings of such a trial. This trial was held while everyone was asleep, the darkness of the night. In addition to this, the trial took place in, in the house of Caiaphas, 
in an enclosed hall over there in that house. And that instead of being held in the council chamber in the temple where all such trials should have taken place. So that in the first place. But in the second place, Jesus was put on trial even though there had been no accusation against him made. I mean, if a person is going to be tried, it's because there's an accusation that has been made of some crime that that person must have committed. Either that, of course, there had to be overwhelming evidence that he had committed some kind of a crime and ought to be tried at this particular point. But, but even in the preliminary examination by Annas, it failed to produce any accusation against Jesus. So, why the trial? <clears throat> now, Matthew reveals to us in verse 59 of our text that they could not find any witness to accuse Jesus, but sought false witness against Jesus to put him to death. There was no complicated courtroom procedure. There was no defense lawyer. There were no witnesses brought to this trial that could testify on behalf of Jesus and the good works that he had performed now among the people of Israel. All of this reveals not only the evil intent of these men, but also the fact that there was no justice whatsoever performed at this particular trial. Concerning the witnesses now, we learn in verse 60 of our text this evening. Yea, though many false witnesses came, yet found they none. That is to say, there was no charge leveled against Jesus during this trial that proved Jesus evil enough to punish with death. Every witness, every witness it seems that came before the council either contradicted other witnesses or, or had such minor charges against this Jesus that there was no reason for them to sentence Jesus to death. That's rather frustrating, I think, for the Sanhedrin itself. But at last, at last, two men approached the council and they gave their testimony. Verse 61. This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. This Jesus had said that he was going to destroy the temple in Jerusalem and then he was going to build it again in three days. Liars! Jesus had never said anything of that sort. He had never said that he was going to destroy the temple. He had said that the Jewish leaders would that destroy that temple. Besides that, everyone knew, just as we do yet today, that Jesus meant the temple of his body. He was not talking about the temple in Jerusalem and that the leaders of Israel would destroy his body and in three days he would raise that body up again. 
We learn concerning these two lying witnesses in Mark's gospel account, Mark 14, verse 59, neither did their witness agree together. That's what Mark tells us. And it was obvious their witness had failed too. Christ's condemnation, well, Christ's condemnation had to be obtained in another way. It wasn't going to work by means of these false witnesses. But those false witnesses had reminded Caiaphas of something. Jesus had made the claim during his earthly ministry, oftentimes, that he was one with God. Well, that meant that Jesus claimed that he was divine. There it was. There it was. The, various thing, the very thing that, that Caiaphas now was going to use to condemn Jesus. Blasphemy. No man may make himself equal with God. That's, that's blasphemy. So Caiaphas stands up in front of Jesus and he asks in a rather show of dramatics this question. Answerest thou nothing? What is it that which these witness against thee? What is it, Jesus, that they're saying in particular about you then? Jesus held his peace. Didn't say anything. He knew the evil intent of the wicked heart of this man before him. Now he knew that Caiaphas wanted to force something out of his mouth. So he remained, well, calmly silent. And that silence, of course, spoke volumes. Jesus was innocent. Not guilty. Why did he have to even defend himself? There was no witness brought that could, could condemn him to death. Everybody sitting there knew that he was innocent. So in sudden anger and frustration, Caiaphas now places Jesus under oath. He knows that a man under oath has to speak now. We can almost hear the passion in the voice of this high priest, when he said to Jesus, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. That's what he was after. Knowing full well the wicked intent of Caiaphas, but also knowing that the purpose of God in our salvation had to be accomplished, Jesus finally answers him under oath. Thou hast said. You said it, Caiaphas. I didn't say it. You're the one testifying on my behalf. You say it because you know, Caiaphas, that it's true. You testify for me that I am the Christ and that I am the Son of God. That was the ground, that testimony, that he was the Christ, the Son of God. It was on that particular ground now that the Sanhedrin condemns Jesus to death. I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. 
who has come as the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises. I am the one to whom all of the Old Testament scriptures point. I am the long-awaited hope of the nation of Israel. I am the one chosen and anointed by God to accomplish the salvation of his people. All of that, of course, we find in the name Christ. The name Christ is synonymous with that Old Testament title, Messiah. Same name. I am that Messiah. And the name Christ, as well as Messiah, means the anointed one. Our Savior was appointed by God. He was anointed with the Holy Spirit to accomplish our salvation and to accomplish that salvation by means of his threefold office as prophet, priest, and king. He was king. He would reign over the house of Israel forever. He was a prophet, the great prophet that Moses spoke of that would come and reveal to God's people the full counsel of God with respect to our salvation through his death and through his resurrection. And he was that priest. He would lay down his life for his sheep and make atonement for them in order that they might be reconciled to God. All that was implied, you see. I am the Christ. And they knew it. But that's not the kind of Messiah, that's not the kind of Christ that the Sanhedrin and many in Israel were looking for. They didn't want some, some Messiah who was going to come and establish a spiritual kingdom and that through the salvation of a people. They were looking for an earthly king. They wanted somebody to come, their Messiah, to come, and they wanted that particular Messiah to lead them in victory over all of their enemies and, and to take over the world so that the nation of Israel could be the head over all nations. They weren't looking for this kind of a Messiah. And so if Jesus didn't fit the bill... If Jesus wasn't the kind of Messiah that they wanted in particular, well, then they didn't want him. They didn't want him. So, Jesus now becomes guilty, in their eyes, of blasphemy. Even though Jesus, remember, had proven well during his earthly ministry that he was that promised Messiah. But that was only the half of it. When Jesus answered Caiaphas with the words, Thou hast said, then Jesus also expressed agreement with this fact. I'm the Son of God. I am the Son of God. And the Sanhedrin stumbled at that particular testimony. With this, Jesus testified that he was, in fact, divine. That he was the eternal, co-essential Son with the Father and the Holy Spirit. That was his testimony. Jesus had to be. He had to be divine, or, or he could not have been the Christ after all. 
He would never be able to accomplish our salvation if Christ were not that Son of God. The two went hand in hand. Only as the Son of God, of course, was he able to bear the full burden of God's wrath against the sin of his people. In order to be the Christ, he had to be the Son of God. Only as the Son of God could Christ rise from the dead and then give you and me life in him. And it was exactly for this reason that the Sanhedrin now despised Jesus. They condemned Jesus because he was the Messiah. They condemned him because he was the Son of God. Sanhedrin probably would not have cared all that much if our Savior was just a man, but it angered them all through Jesus' earthly ministry and now too that he was the Son of God. <clears throat> Their wicked and blinded hearts this, in their estimation, was only an attempt on Jesus' part to gain a following. I mean, let, let, let's put ourselves in their place. They were unbelievers. They were unbelievers. So they looked at this man, Jesus, as just another attempt, as so many others had made, and were still making, to say that they were the Messiah. And that to gain a following after them and then raise some kind of insurrection in the nation of Israel. Was Jesus was trying this insidious uh, type of, of reasoning and teaching to gain this following so that he could be declared the Messiah when, in fact, they did not believe one whit that Jesus was the Messiah at all. We spoke of that this morning, and it's true in this instance too, the, the, the reason that these men could not see that Jesus was the Messiah is explained by Jesus a little earlier on in his ministry in Matthew 13, verse 15, where he's quoting Isaiah. This people's heart is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed lest at any time they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and should understand with their heart and should be converted and I should heal them. To them Jesus was not the Son of God and even if an angel from heaven or Moses came from the dead and told them that he was the Messiah, their eyes were blinded and they would not have believed him that he was the Messiah. We ought to see the irony in the trial that we have before us tonight. There was no way possible that these evil men could condemn Jesus. He was perfectly innocent. And now they condemn him for exactly who he was. The Christ. Son of God. The very ground of Jesus' condemnation before the Sanhedrin was the truth about him. They sent him to death because he was the Messiah, the true Messiah, the Son of God. Well, that's not the end of Christ's testimony. It almost seems to be rubbing salt now into the, the, the uh, wounds 
of this, this Sanhedrin. So he concludes by saying in verse 64, Nevertheless, I say unto you, Hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Jesus tells them that they shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power. And by power, of course, Jesus meant God. He's sitting at the right hand of God because God, of course, has all power and and. and Authority in heaven and on earth. That's who God is. You're going to see me sitting at the right hand of power. A power that I'm going to receive from God himself. A power that he is going to invest in me. A power that I'm going to receive from God even by means of my suffering and death on the cross. Notice that Jesus Christ now calls himself Son of Man too because the power that he received as the Son of God is also a power he received as the Son of Man. He had to be the Son of Man too. He had to represent you and me at the cross there. He's born right into the heart of the covenant as the Son of Man and he would pay the price for our sins and redeem us from our sins as the Son of Man as well as the Son of God. But you will see that Son of Man now sitting in power at the right hand of God. When would they see that? That, that, That's the question, isn't it? When would they see Jesus Christ in power? They wouldn't see him in power at the cross, even though every indication there at the cross was that Christ was performing a powerful work in our salvation. They didn't, they didn't see that power of Christ at the cross. They saw some weak man hanging there on a tree. That's all they saw. They didn't see the power of the Son of Man when he arose from the dead. In unbelief, their eyes were covered, and they even lied about it and spread the lie all around the nation of Israel that the disciples had stolen his body. They didn't see Christ's power then. They didn't see the power of Jesus Christ when he poured out the Spirit upon his church and that church went universal in nature, still covered. Their eyes were covered with with unbelief. They didn't see it. They, of course, didn't see Christ's power in his ascension into heaven where his disciples were, were witnesses of that. And they, still today, they and their followers do not see the power of the ascended Lord who sits at God's right hand and who is governing everything that takes place in this world. Christ is an all-powerful king. No doubt about it. But they didn't see that. They didn't see that. Would they see Jesus Christ in power? They will. They will. Revelation 1, verse 17, or verse 7, is is an important passage. Behold, Christ comes with the clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, the Sanhedrin, 
they also that pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Christ comes again at the end of time. And Jesus is referring now to that fact when testifying before the Sanhedrin. And when, in effect, Jesus was telling the Sanhedrin this, Although now I appear before you bound and helpless, although now you look upon me with contempt and hatred, and you condemn me to death over the very testimony that I have given you, although you will persecute me, and you will kill me in the cruelest manner, you will see my power. Someday, at the end of time, when I come again, I will come as the great judge of heaven and earth. And though I stand in trial before you now, in that day, you will stand in trial before me. Beware, Sanhedrin. Beware. Jesus now had left no doubt to his identity. And he now stands before the Old Testament church and its representatives. And the question is put to the Sanhedrin. What do you think of the Christ? the Son of God. And the response of the Sanhedrin is revealed already in the actions, first of all, of Caiaphas. He now takes his high priestly robe and he, he rends it, piously accusing Jesus now of blasphemy. It appears, of course, appears that, that Caiaphas is beside himself with righteous indignation at this man. And yet we know that his reaction is that of unbelief. The high priest was never allowed to rend that high priestly mantle. And yet it's fitting that Caiaphas did that, isn't it? From a prophetic point of view, this action reveals that there would no longer from that day on be any need for that priestly office of the Old Testament. Christ would come and offer the one sacrifice for all of his children on the cross and fulfill that office of the high priest in the Old Testament. But Caiaphas had now accomplished exactly what he wanted. He had gotten Jesus to admit that he was the Christ, the Son of God. In the eyes of unbelief, words of blasphemy. What think ye? What do you think of this man's blasphemy? What do you think of this Christ, who is the Son of God? There's no more need for witnesses. We don't need witnesses anymore. What do you think of him? And the Sanhedrin together says he is guilty of death. And now their true nature comes out. 
Men of dignity act in the basest of manners. They, together with their servants, spit in the face of Jesus. And they buffet him. That is to say, they punch him. They slap him across the face. And then they take a blindfold and they put it over the eyes of Jesus and slap him again and mock him by saying, Tell us, who is it, Christ, that slapped you? Mockery. What a shameful trial. And what a shameful end. What a way to treat the Savior. Ah, but people of God. Let's not be so quick to point the finger at them. They were representatives of the church, you know. The church had rejected Christ. You and I, if not for the work of God's grace in our hearts, would have done the same thing. By God's grace and the work of the Savior in our hearts, of course, through His Spirit, we as God's people have come to know that Savior. Otherwise, we would have rejected Him too. Unbelief does that. Every mouth, ours too, Paul says, is stopped. And all the world becomes guilty before God. So we too, again, except for the grace of God, we too would be condemned before that tribunal of our God. We give God thanks tonight. People of God, we give God thanks tonight that he has opened our hearts and our eyes to see and to know that Savior and what he has done for us. To see our sin, to see our shame, and we confess it before God. Our eyes and our, our hearts are opened so that we embrace that Savior, our Savior. We who are the enemies of God are covered in the precious blood of that Lord who was condemned there that night for our salvation. That's what we learn tonight from this trial of our Lord we serve a Savior that now reigns in power, and in that power he has saved us from our own unbelief. He rules over the world, and we look for his second coming at the end of time. We thank God, don't we? We thank God for our salvation. So, let's confess it together tonight. We believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Amen. Our Father and our God, again we come before Thee in this night, humbled by Thy Word and thankful for the salvation we have freely received in the cross 
of our Savior. We're thankful, too, that we might be reminded of his passion and of his death so that we, too, might look to that cross of our Savior for our life in this world, for the forgiveness of sins not only, but the fact that through him we have a place in thy household and family. Bless us, therefore, by thy word also in this evening, and may we take that word with us again in this week to come so that we might live as those who belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank Thee for Thy Word. and We thank Thee for the time of fellowship that we could share as a minister of the gospel in a congregation in these past couple of weeks. Will Thou bless us in our union with one another. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.